Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Academy Rewind, the fortnightly podcast where we take a look at the Oscars from years past. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is my man who just wishes he was rich. It's Palmer. How are you today? Still wishing I was rich, but other than that, fine. I know I know so much about Russian history now. You could ask Why? me... You, you can ask me anything about Russian history, and I'll know it. Why was there so much Russia in this episode? <laughs> it's not, These movies came out in 1971. Yes, I know the Cold War and blah blah blah, but it was weirdly condensed all in one place. And then in a chronological Red's, timeline. And then Red's last episode. Yes, yeah, it's true. We've, we've done we've done a lot of Russia recently, <laughs> but it's an interesting history. So I'm not opposed to it. It's just all. It's kind of like when you go through periods where oh there were three films about world war ii this time or there was you know all movies about this or this like we're just in the russian era of the academy <laughs> awards i didn't know there was one but here we are yeah, yeah. yep there was all right so let's actually uh talk about these five films they are as follows the french connection the last picture show a clockwork orange nicholas and alexandra and fiddler on the roof palmer what one best picture french Connection? That is correct. The French yeah. Connection won Best Picture. Go um, me. Is that something that you knew somewhere in the back of your brain? Uh, I think so. Yeah. 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 That yeah. yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Were, were any of these films completely uh, new to you? Like you had never even heard of them before? Uh, Nicholas uh, and Alexandria was completely new. I had never heard of it. And then I had never seen Last Picture Show, uh, French Connection, or Nicholas and Alexandria, or Fiddler on the Roof. I only saw Fiddler on the Roof, the, the stage show, you know, a couple years ago when we saw it, so that was my first. Oh, oh! So the only thing out of this list is a Clockwork Orange. What yeah, a, unfortunately. What a what a what a, <laughs> what a foreboding way to enter 1972. <laughs> oh goodness! All right, well, let's start with the Russian history, but we're going to go in chronological order. So let's start with Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. Um, directed by Norman Jewison, written by Joseph Stein, based on his screenplay and stage. Uh, Joseph Stein wrote the screenplay based on his own stage play, adapted from the stories of Shalona Khem by. Arnold Pearl, starring Topol, Norma Crane, Leonard Frey, Rosalind Harris, Michelle Marsh, and Paul Michael Glacier, a.k.a. Starsky. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Topol, Supporting Actor for Frey, uh, Director and Art Direction. This movie won Best Cinematography, Sound, and Music in the category was Scoring, Adaptation, and Original Song Score. Uh, so it was like, it was, I think that was a, it was a different category than Best <laughs> If your song, category. if your movie has music, you're nominated. Basically. I think that's kind of where they were going with it. But, you know, it was John Williams' first Oscar, so good for him. He started. Yeah, and it's just like one song, isn't it? (laughs) It's like the beginning song or something. Well, yeah, yeah, and whatever music he adapted from, and whatever songs and underscore he adapted from the musical for the film. Hmm. So that's that's how it worked. They, you know, they cut stuff, he adds pieces here, whatever else. He revamps some of the book. I mean, if you're not familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, it takes place in pre revolutionary Russia, in which a Jewish peasant contends with marrying all three of his daughters while growing anti-Semitic sentiment threatens his village of Anatevka. Um, I've seen and there's very and there's very little fiddling on roofs. There's, there's, 
there's little fiddling, uh, but he is present because he's supposed to be. The fiddler on the roof is supposed to be like the spirit of Anna Tefka, right? He's like the living embodiment of Anna Tefka, and that and that's why Tevia is really the only one that interacts with the fiddler, um, because he's narrating he's narrating his story. That's always been my read on it. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, it think- isn't. I forgot what the fiddler actually is because it's actually like based on a person. Oh well, good for the fiddler. Then. <laughs> then anyway, um, I think I've seen the musical a bunch and I've seen the film a handful of times and I think it's one of the all-time great movie musicals. Um, it set the the stage show um, is absolutely a stage show, right? It's played that way, but mm-hmm. I like that Norman Jewison said, okay, we're going to make this as realistic as possible and also there will be songs. Um, and I, I very much um, I very much like that take on Fiddler because you can feel the grime in the movie. They filmed in Yugoslavia, Croatia, some, um, and uh, it's it fe- the the production feels lived in. And when they break into song, it doesn't feel forced. It feels like a natural. It feels like a natural occurrence, even in this gritty post uh, pre revolutionary Russia. Um, and I love that. I love. I think Topol is it gives an outstanding performance. I know that Zero Mostel, who originated the part of Tevia on Broadway, was like really upset that he was not asked to be Tevia um, in the film. Mm-hmm. But Jewish was he was going for something more authentic, and I really think that he, I think that he found that. Um, and it's just a wonderful. You don't show. think Zero Mostel is authentic? I, I think that he's a stage actor, like you know, and I think that like that when you prepare for a role on the stage, you have to perform it differently than you would in a film. And I think they they thought, well, that he's going to bring that staginess to the to the film, and that's just not what they were looking for. It's not against his performance; it's just the wrong. Type oh, of he was in the producers the that they were watching. Yeah, he was, but that producers is a it's a different kind of film mm. like that the producers is really it's a highball comedy it's a Mel Brooks like you should be larger than life and there's a lot of restraint in Topol's performance there's a lot of good eye work like he's like constantly looking at the sky being like you know because he's always talking to God right that's part of his like, right the back and forth like and but so well, even not really right, back so, like, and forth that's his yeah his back and forth to the sky so it's really his forth <laughs> to the sky and the, the clouds look back at him um, but the uh, um, but like you know, like he says things, he does things, and he he looks up all the time. Like it's you know ingrained in his performance to to be subtle. And if you are not looking, if you're not looking for uh, how he's thinking or how he's feeling, you actually might miss it because he doesn't always ex- like explicitly say it out loud. And it's a really it's a really sublime performance. And I think everybody in the film is like that. I think uh, Afray, who plays Motzel, the the tailor. Um, I think they're it's all it's all good. All the it, it's all good what did you think um it's it's definitely different than the stage show and i think it goes a little bit more sad and depressing earlier than the stage show um Mm -hmm. so that's there's a little bit of a tonal shift in the movie that it just doesn't quite recover from and that's more of the story that they're giving you Wait, wait wait i have a question so yeah in the so it's the show starts relatively happy bit of a comedy right you know and it transitions 
from the wedding onward into this more melodrama about you know about anti-semitism and right right and right change and how you know traditions are failing and people have to leave their homeland and blah 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 but if it's but if the film starts a little bit on the bleaker side where is the i don't think uh, it starts on the bleaker side i think it just gets there earlier okay yeah i can i can i can understand that i think that works to the advantage of the story i sit in a different camp because it it doesn't feel like their lives spiral out of control out of nowhere it's like a it's a steady it's a steady decline that they don't mm-hmm. notice but the audience does and I, I like that yeah i mean i just i just think they're the way the story is laid out and presented you know i i understand what they're going for and it works to a degree i just feel like tonally the mo- the the story is in two different places and i don't know if i like how it's kind of married together sure that's fine i i i you think know. the same criticism could be laid at the feet of the stage show as well like you uh, yeah with some, yeah because i remember different... when we were like walking out of the stage show i'm like so it it just ends like yeah, there's no sure there's no like yeah. last music number nope nope you, you just walk off yep. at the sunset and you have to go to new york if yep. you want to get the rest of the story yeah like nope it just ends it's like it's the jewish version of jesus christ superstar like they're <laughs> kicked out of the village and everyone's sad and jesus christ superstar jesus is just you know chilling there on the cross and it's like all right guys lights up <laughs> and you're like and you're done thank you yep. so much see <laughs> you later and then like you start clapping you're like am, am i supposed to clap now because no you're supposed to feel sad and leave in silence i mean you would think like that's that is actually like the feeling you get when when both the movie and the show is done you're like i i don't think you're supposed to clap like Uh, i think you're just supposed to think about all the wrongs in your life and then go walk into traffic or something correct correct you know um no there there is a bit of there is a bit of hope right because like there's there's tevia who has disowned his last daughter because she may you know she marries in the christian tradition and not in not in the jewish tradition yeah and she but marries, they're so going to crack out i know that's not going to end well for them no it's i know i thought that too um that's that's not i i, I always forget where all each daughter ends up like i thought I know, they I ended they up in crack out but no the i had forgotten uh, like I they, they were going go to off to yeah i was forgot they were going off to new york i remembered one i remember like somebody was going to crack out because i remember like during during the show i'm like what the hell yeah what i mean like that's but that's true though i mean they, no they, i'm not like, yeah they, i'm not saying it's true yeah. but like but like it was funny because you're like well you know there's a little bit of hope at the end of the show in the movie because he kind of he kind of like forgives his daughter not completely but in his own way and mm-hmm. you know they're gonna you know she'll start writing them and hopefully that'll repair but they go to krakow like correct like correct. <laughs> well i mean they go but they go to krakow pre-world war one they're not even like you know so that's a lot of years before they end like they could in your that's own even day, worse because they'll be old in krakow <laughs> no i said they could but they're they're only staying there for a little while before they go to america where I, they face different kind of terrible struggles look i am going to write a sequel to this so everything turns out okay because i think, I think the desperate there 
there is a sequel. Um, oh fun God! Fact. This is, is it, is I, it this Empire is Strikes Back? No, it's not. <laughs> no, the, the the bracketed Russian Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> um, no, it's a it is a it's a novel and also a um, and also a um, a black box um, a black box stage musical like a one act mu- music uh, musical. It's called After Anatevka, uh, and it was written by Alexandra Silber, who played Zeidel in the Fiddler on the Roof revival on Broadway okay. uh, a couple of years ago. The staging that we saw, okay. um, she played in that in that revival, not the one previous to that with Alfred Molina, but um, she played Zeidel through like several like different like several different directors and incarnations mm-hmm. she was the character for a while and she wrote this book about like what happened to Zeidel going off to Siberia um you know looking for looking for Starsky um afterwards and uh it does mention like because she's writing to her family it does tell you what happened to the rest of her mm-hmm. family um uh, and so it's be, it, because it's mostly about Zeidel it's unfair to say that like it's a like a direct sequel to right. it because you you only get glimpses of these other characters by yeah. letters but mm-hmm. um but I do recommend if if you if you love Fiddler on the Roof I would at least try to find the stage the the music that was written for it um and then cuz you wrote the book and then turn that into like a a, a one a one act show mm-hmm. um which is really cool and they do music from Fiddler and from you know original to after yeah. Tefka and you know to Paul to Paul did this character for a long time because he did it after Zero Mostel on Broadway. He did it originally with the London show and then he did like tourings of it and like I remember it's like maybe it's been a decade maybe a little bit more but like he did another touring of it as like his last round of of shows for Fiddler kind of like when um, Anthony Rapp and non-Anthony Rapp did for Rent. (laughs) (laughs) I know who you're talking about too and my the name completely blanked out yeah the musician yeah yeah um like they oh went gosh they did a touring name? production one last time for the characters that they you know that they did and to paul actually did this character for so long that adam pascal adam pascal like adam pascal to paul actually did this character for so long because he was only in his 30s when this movie is out so like he's in his 30s playing a 50 year old when to paul actually retires the the touring company that uh, the touring version that he does as kind of like his last hurrah one of the daughters is now playing the wife wow yeah wow that's amazing good for him like i said before he's he's magnificent like he's so good and he is most most um nothing against zero mostel but i think so because the movie is something that's so accessible as opposed to an original performance on a stage like i think so many future tevias have been so influenced by his performance yeah and the music is done really well. I like, you know, it, it's a, it's all a similar style. There's no, like, real differences, but it gets the point of the emotions across. Uh, they're catchy. They're pop. You know, If I Were a Rich Man was adapted by Gwen Stefani. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, yeah. No, I, um, it's, um, I, I think the whole thing's great. And even the, I think it's a, it's a rather timeless story as well, right? Because you have this guy who's, you know, he just, this is the way the world works. This is how I know. This is what I'm comfortable with. Everybody's happy. Turns out not everybody's happy, and it's either adapt with the times, man, or fall behind. And that is a real struggle for many people. I think that if you took the story out of pre-revolution Russia mm-hmm. and threw it into 
1962 Southern Georgia, like for, you know, when you have different things or, or in 1988 New York or whatever. And like, oh, she doesn't marry, you know, she doesn't marry a Christian. She's actually gay or, you know, something like that's it's the same. You can have the same story and change some of the specifics, making it making it quite timeless. There you go. The segregated South version, uh, Jazz Man on the Roof. <laughs> I would watch it. I, I, I know feel, you would. I feel icky the whole time, but I would watch it. <laughs> because it's more American history? You're like, ah, oh, this yes. is fine. They were in Russia. I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with this. I could feel terrible for them and have no <laughs> guilt about it whatsoever. Um, give me some fun facts on Fiddler on the Roof. Orson Welles, Anthony Quinn, Marlon Brando were among the many actors who turned down the lead role of Tevia. Frank Sinatra and Danny Kaye both wanted the role and were passed over. I want alternate universes where I see Orson Welles and Marlon Brando as Tevia. Same, but I don't want to see any other version. Like, I never, ever want to even imagine a version of a world where Frank Sinatra played Tevia. Like, <laughs> love Frank Sinatra. What what a magnificent performer. No. Stay away. <laughs> Marlon Brando. What if I did Tevia with a Scottish accent? Marlon, he's Russia. Russian. Well, too late. I'm already doing it with a Scottish accent. What if I, every instead of saying the dialogue, everything I say, because I'm not going to bother to actually learn the, 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 <laughs> the words. <laughs> what if I sang all the words except the songs? <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Botzel's sewing machine. Okay, let's go. <laughs> but as music. <laughs> To get the look they wanted for the film, director Norm Jewishen told director and, photo and director of photography Oswald Morris, who was famous for shooting color films in unusual styles, to shoot the film in an earthly tone. Morris saw a woman wearing a brown nylon hosiery and thought, that's the tone we want, and asked the woman for the stockings on the spot, and shot the entire film with a stocking over the lens. The weave can be detected in some scenes. That's You don't get stuff like that in movies anymore. <laughs> Like, no, because it's all it's CGI. Like, and no, it's even like little things, like you know, in ET when you're supposed, like he's like he's got the the like the ghost costume on, and he's like, oh look, you can see through his eyes. It's just like a little piece of paper or cloth with two holes cut out over the camera lens, and that's yeah. how they shoot that. And I'm like, you don't get fun stuff like that in movies anymore. Nope, yeah, they're not even trying. No, nope. Di director Norm Jewison was brought into the project by executives at United Artists who thought he was Jewish. His first words to the executive upon meeting them were, you know I'm not Jewish, right? Fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> what? You're not? Yeah, well, we already signed the contract, so good luck. <laughs> you know, but kudos to them for trying to be <laughs> inclusive that way, I guess, but also... <laughs> His name is Jewish. His name is Jewish, and he must be Jewish. Yeah. No, it can't be that obvious, can it? Of course <laughs> it can. Everything's obvious in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. All right, that was three, right? Yeah. All right, let's continue with our Russian history Nicholas and Alexandra, directed by Franklin J. Schaffer, uh, Schaffner, written by James Goldman, Edward Bond, based on the book by Robert K. Macy, starring Michael Jaston, Janet Sussman, Tom Baker, Laurence Olivier, and Ian Holm. Nominated for Best Picture, Actress for Sussman, Cinematography, and Music for Original Dramatic Score. Uh, this movie
movie won Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. The story revolves around the last years of Tsar Nicholas II, the last monarch of Russia preceding the Bolshevik Revolution, and then into the Bolshevik Revolution. Spoilers if you don't know what happened to them. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. Except Anastasia. Well, yeah, she dies eventually. We didn't really talk about... Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, because she's a human being, not an immortal, <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, this is a, this one was a new one for me. Uh, I was looking forward to this because I the story because you I love Russian history a little bit. That's well, interesting, and I have no guilt over it, so it's you know it's okay. Um, so, but I I've always been fascinated by the fall of fall of the czars, their relationship with Rasputin. When I was a kid, I saw that awesome Rasputin movie with um, Alan Rickman, the HBO oh, the, one. The T- oh, was it HBO? I thought it was TNT. It was no, it's an HBO movie, and it's <laughs> so hard to find now that they just not putting it back out there into the world but i still have my vhs tape because i'm old anyway um yeah it's uh i really liked this i was reading up on it afterwards and a lot of people were like this is like the forgotten like great epic of hollywood like no one remembers it was made and yet it was really solid i found its biggest flaw is that its stars or the its its cast or you know the character cast of characters are not good people like they're you know and the film does show you signs of that but it doesn't really like it, it wants to paint a sympathetic view of the of the Romanovs and their fall I, which is I don't fine. think it does I think it does a little bit like not in a not in a completely like it, let's ignore the things that they did you know there's a lot of like firing squads and people in the streets yelling and blood and stuff I mean but it's it is more interested <sighs> of them as humans and faltering through their mistakes that well, lead to their deaths well yeah but like it's it wants you to feel bad for them in the sense of you know they get they get murdered essentially like you can you can argue everyone but czar nicholas is murdered now whether or not now whether or not you want to argue that just because he's a deposed leader doesn't mean he you know and and the stuff that went on during russia in russia during his time you know maybe those things weren't necessarily a death sentence reason that's an argument that can be made i don't you know i i didn't live through that period of time so i'm not going to touch that but i i don't think it tries to paint them in any other sympathetic light other than that but you're right like i so the only thing that i know from this point of time with the romanovs in russian history is what i get from the beginning of anastasia and apparently it is completely different and i don't mean that i don't so different i don't mean that in the sense of like all the lead up to it i just mean like an anastasia it's like hey there's a party going on hey Hey, they took my entire family and then they shot him. Like it was like it looked like it was like a three minute thing, and it was such a, you know it was actually like they get you know he abdicates and then they get, they get sent here and then they get moved here and then they get hijacked here. So like it was a long process. Um, right. But what I found really interesting was this movie does a really good job with and I've said this before with historical epics like give me the information I need to enjoy the movie. Don't assume that I know what's going on. Yep, I completely agree with you we've talked about this a lot especially at the oscars because so many of most so many movies nominated are historical epics yeah this movie does not assume you know russian history right um, which is good because i don't think anybody does no i don't even think the russians know it no it's been locked away in a cabinet they're not allowed to see it well um, but you laugh but... well i know i'm not <laughs> laughing I'm like, well, i am now but that uh, wasn't really a joke i'm trying i'm actually looking back through my uh all right i don't actually have it in in the fun facts but 
like, there was a period of time that, you know, there was that whole thing like, oh, Anastasia's alive and this and that. There was a period of time where all the information about what happened to the Romanovs was not accessible to anybody but government. And it wasn't until, like, 1995 or 6 that it finally became, like... Public access. Public access, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that that's true of a lot of things. We had an episode earlier this season about JFK and those documents documents weren't released that you know so that's not that's not unique to russia but it's it's different it's just different but um i i uh, to go back to your point about it it like uh, you know the, you the know, history don't assume the history i think it does an excellent job at giving you everything you need to know and really nothing more mm-hmm. like it doesn't it doesn't it concerns itself it's really one long character piece because it, it's concerning yeah you, it's you know you, go ahead. you get glimpses of stalin and lenin and their rise but the movie is not at all concerned with that like you no, just see them I don't even I, go ahead you see them on the periphery and you get a couple scenes of them so you know like what they're up to what they're doing but you're right this movie is mostly like the problems that were caused by Zar by Zar Nicholas's like stubbornness stupidity not listening to his advisors and mm-hmm. kind of going back to the last movie like tradition like the world was changing and he didn't want to he wanted to keep russia in the same in the same sense that his father had it correct and that's that's part of the downfall like i you know i usually take the um the first imdb description of the Mm -hmm. plot for the thing and when with the one on i i actually changed it because the one on imdb it says like it follows the the reign uh the end of the reign of the inept czar nicholas the second he was I, was like, that, I mean, he was, but I was like, that feels harsh, like, because, like, again, it's, he was, but also, you can understand, like, you can understand the, like, wanting to maintain the honor, the glory, what was, that's, that's your job as Marnarch, really, in so much of it, is to, like, keep the kingdom alive, and you just have, you have Stalin, you have Trotsky, you have Lenin, you have all of these people who are, like, working to undermine your authority and not even counting the people in his own palace um and so it's like i like that the movie he's not a raving lunatic but he's but he's also <laughs> but he's close <laughs> yeah he, yeah yeah no and like like i don't know if i would like towards the end of the movie he you know he kind of comes to terms with what's happened and what he did like he actually says it like he's like i you know i did this which caused this and this and this or you know i was I was ruthless. You're right. There is a there is some sen- there's some semblance of him of the pull to keep Russia together. But it seems like everything he's doing is counterintuitive to that. Like he wants to keep Russia together like this was 1800 and like his, you know, his advisors are telling him like, look, look, if you just like, why do we need this base in, I think they were they fighting in Korea? Like, I think that was it, right? It was in Korea. Mm-hmm. They were fighting the Japanese. I think so, but I can't yeah, remember. They were like, why are we sending all these, all these soldiers to Korea? And he's like, well, we never lost a war. You know, my father handed me a Russia that never lost a war. Like, well, too bad. Take the L, man. Yeah, no, and I, but, and yeah. But that's the part that I like about the film is that, like, you as an audience member can be like, dude, like, chill. You know, yeah. it's cold in Russia. Chill a little. <laughs> you know, but the, 
but at the but at the same but at the same time you can it gives you a very human performance and one that you can absolutely understand where he's coming from even if you don't agree with with it you could be like all right yeah i get like to your point with fiddler tradition like this is this is what was and i have to keep it this way and that what makes his fall all that much sadder and also more also satisfying um yeah and uh, but i also like that it doesn't it does not paint lenin trotsky or stalin in a good light either it's not like the movie doesn't really take sides um it just like it's a factual history as human yeah as, this isn't it like tries to take everyone as human as possible yeah like this isn't reds that kind of try to paint the the communist regime in a little bit more of a rosy picture until the end when you literally have a communist going no we can't you know we already failed <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh but you're right like they never paint anybody they never try and paint anybody better than what they are this tries to take a very factual approach to it and i think it does it really well um lost epic i think would be would be like some higher praise than i would be willing to give it um i think it's it's missing while it's very like down to earth and acted really well realistic I think it's missing, like, the lavishness of what an epic should be. I agree. For its, for all of its grandeur in the palace and their costumes and, and Spain and, like, all these different places that you, you go to, it's also kind of forgettable yeah. in, in how it's shot. I didn't find... There's, the only sequence that I found, the way that it was shot was particularly good, was the train sequence where they're, like, you know, they're, like, they're going back on the train to Russia and then the, like the people coming to arrest them and Ian Holmes in the middle he's like he's not my monarch I'm just trying to do my duty and then right. you have this like little guy like staring down the train like that's the only time that I'm like wow that was really that that was really solid that's yeah cool. yeah no that was that was really good so I would say it's missing a little bit of the grandeur like say Dr. Shivago like Dr. Shivago sure. I would put as an epic it has that grandeur and kind of similar in, like it kind of takes place in the similar uh, time does. frame right Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, because that's the only time we'll make a movie about Russia is during this time frame. Apparently, it's because they don't know the rest of it. It's very yeah. confusing. Over the, yeah. No one. No one knows. Uh, I had something else to say, but I forgot what it was. The good job. Really good. Janet's husband, I thought, was really good. Oh, um, Rasputin, Tony, um, Tom uh, Baker, Tom Baker, Tom Baker, Doctor Who, the Doctor. Yeah. Um, I that was I one of the only maybe just because I'm interested in the story of Rasputin, but I thought that they he was there and not there. It was almost like he wasn't necessary to a lot of the story they were telling. Um, and even though like so much of it was about the health of their son and all of this, but like maybe it was just so much going on, I never really felt the connection between him and um and alexandra the way that they're like was or should have been in my i as i agree i agree and especially because we're told like that is some of the issues that are leading to the revolution like one of the issues that the people have is it has to do with rasputin so the fact that he's not in it that much or we don't know exactly why yep he's just it's just was i if i didn't know why he was there i would have found it very unclear like yeah it's like, like where is it? it does a good job at, it, at not at helping me understand the rest of the history yeah but his connection to the family is is, is like yeah because like all you're sitting there is like all right his wife's superstitious so you know she thinks having him around will keep her son alive and when he's sent away something happens and the son you know the son has a little bit of a relapse and not knowing medical at that time 
something, you know, she automatically assumes it's because of this. So you're right. Like, I don't know why him being around the royal family was was upsetting to the Russian people. I would have liked to have known why that. Like, I understand why other reasons why the Russian people were upset. I understand that, you know, the war in Korea that they didn't really need to do. And then the war, you know, you had World War One, which you could argue was more like necessary, maybe. Like, I don't know enough about the political dynamics of World War One, although. Like, I know it was pretty much just like everyone started fighting just because they had to. It was like this one declared yeah, so war on this one. And then it was like, well, we're allies. So I guess we have to declare war. That is, you know, that's how you get a world war. Yep, Making friends. Mm-hmm. But I mean, well, yeah, but there's also a difference between like how World War One is and World War Two is like World War Two is more of like, no, like I know we're friends, but we can agree this guy is evil. It needs to be stopped. Like... You know, there was there wasn't that central evil in World War One. No, not there wasn't an excess of evil, if right? You, if you will, there, so, there was, but there wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, the Rasputin one is the only thing that's lacking. But I'll, you know what? I'll probably go back now and watch the Rasputin movie um, mm-hmm. with with Alan Rickman, or there was another one that I thought I saw where with like Jeremy Irons or something. I don't know, but ooh, I did yeah. not know that. I know Ian McKellen is Nicholas the Second in the Alan Rickman one. Ooh. Um, I think somebody else good is in there, but I can't remember. But yeah, I just um, the Rasputin stuff was the only lacking bit. But I don't think Tom Baker's performance was lacking. I thought he was great. Yeah, I just think that what he was given was not tons. Right. Um, especially his um, assassination, I thought was kind of was kind of lacking too. I was like, oh, this man gets like shot, stabbed, beaten, poisoned, thrown in a river, and he's still like all this stuff. He's still alive, and I didn't get any of that. I got some of that fun stuff, but not all of it. And I just uh, no, they pretty much just. More. They pretty much just poison him. That doesn't work. He's still trying to, like, leave, and then they shoot him, and he's still trying to leave, and then they beat him, and then he's dead. Like, that's all. I know. They skipped some of the... Uh, they skipped the poison. They skipped the no, river. No, they, they showed the poison. I, they showed the poison? Yeah. That's they the first... They the river, though? They skipped the river. They skipped the river. Yeah, because, like, they think they think he's dead because he's like, oh, you poisoned me, and then he falls, and they're like, well, we need to get rid of the body, oh, yeah, and the body's right. not there, and then they and then they shoot that's him, right. and then they beat him. Um, and again, like, oh, so that's... They skipped, they skipped the stabbing. That's what it was. So they, yeah, he was poisoned. Oh yeah, and shot and stabbed. Beat. Maybe yeah. this, yeah. But anyway, give but, some fun facts. And I will say that I will say that like the only reason like you see for them killing him is just because like people in the palace don't like him. But why? Like, there's no real reason. Is, is... well, he's weird. Let's see. He's yeah, weird and I'm... he smells bad. Yeah. Sure, but so do so doesn't so do you? I mean, that's yeah. But I'm not in the palace. The first line spoken by Count Frederick is dubbed by an uncredited actor because Jack Hawkins' voice box had been removed. Russia's then capital, St. Petersburg, was renamed Petrograd after World War One began, largely because St. Petersburg was considered too German and Germany became Russia's enemy in the war. However, in the film, the name Petrograd is never mentioned. The city is still called St. Petersburg by several characters, including government officials, in the time after the Great War began. It's likely this fact was unbeknownst to the filmmakers. I would say maybe it's unbeknownst, but also like if you somebody renames a city and you're used to calling it a different name the whole time like I'm just gonna keep calling it by its old name like if someone was like oh well there's that there's that song at the beginning of Anastasia there's a rumor in St. Petersburg have you heard right but they're like 
but they talk about like how the name of the city has changed several times. Yes, that's right. It's it was Stalingrad. And do, do, you can do, call do. it, yeah, you can call it because it, that was it. It was like St. Petersburg, Leningrad, then Petrograd, then Stalingrad. Yeah. Stalingrad or Leningrad? Yeah. It was Leningrad. Leningrad, yeah. Leningrad, yeah. Because Lenin was the top guy. Correct. Not for a long yeah. Uh No, because Stalin was the head during World War Two. so. He sure was. He sure was, Bob. All right, give me, uh, give me. But I mean, Lenin was probably older, so. That's Correct. Okay. I don't, I honestly don't know. <laughs> July 17th, 1998, Tsar Nicholas II is formally laid to rest in St. Petersburg's Peter and Paul Fortress on the 80th anniversary of his death, together with his wife Alexandra, some servants, and three of their four children, Olga, Tatiana, and Anastasia. The bones had been positively identified by DNA comparison with blood samples from European royal families, although their identities have never really were never really in any doubt to those who were responsible for the killings. Not included in the analysis were any bone samples of less than 100% certainty, such as the fourth royal child, Alexis, where the DNA had been contaminated by sewage water. Thus, Anastasia wasn't the one that lived. It was Alexis. Isn't it funny that that happened like a year after Fox released Anastasia, the movie, too? They were like, oh no, what happened to the Princess Anastasia? A year later, there she's right there. We, we found her. Yeah, I mean, they had always kind of said like it's just a story like they had found yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, the disney but, cartoon was never ever the um uh which is, i guess technically it is now a disney fox, cartoon but the how fox, dare you the fox cartoon never claimed to be authentic in any way um uh it was though it wasn't only in my heart what a movie though so fun that was the that was my real complaint with uh with rescue is he didn't have his talking bat with oh him. you look pretty good for a dead guy sir oh okay oh no that's why <laughs> because oh no i guess he would have had bartrock before anyway not important let's talk about everyone Everyone's favorite movie of all time, A Clockwork Orange, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick, based on the novel by Anthony Burgess. I can feel you hyperventilating across the internet. Um, starring Malcolm McDowell, um, Patrick McGee, Adrian Corey, and Miriam Carlin. Nominated for Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, and Editing. This movie won no awards. Uh, in the future, a sadistic gang leader named Alex, right? Alex? Alex. Yeah. yeah. Um, is an imprisoned and volunteers for a, a conduct aversion experiment and then things maybe happen don't happen who's to say it's a stanley kubrick movie um okay so here's my i need isn't there another movie about isn't there another movie about russian history we can talk about I know, instead I know. um all right so <laughs> here's my history with this movie i don't know if i've ever told you the story so um my dearest friend slash co-host frank um you may know from beer with geeks and supergirl tv talk and um all these other the things um frank came to vacation uh with me several years ago nine years ago as a matter of fact so it's been nine years since i've seen this movie um before watching nine years to the day uh it's nine years to the summer which is weird so um it's like a it was like a month off so it actually really wasn't it, it was anyway i have a bad memory i have bad flashbacks um the vacation was great frank and i had this amazing idea that we should watch a classic movie that everyone like should see like one of those like a thousand and one movies 
movies you must see before you die kind of thing. And so we uh-huh. scoured, we looked through the movies, what was on Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And we finally settled on A Clockwork Orange. Didn't know enough about it. I tried to read the book when I was in high school and I couldn't get past the, I couldn't get past the, um, the jargon, not the jargon, the, um, slang, the made up slang. Like it's because it, none of it's explained. So it's like, so you kind of have to, you have to just figure out from the context what everyone's talking about. And the movie does that too, which is good, but it's a little easier in a movie because you're looking at something and you don't have to imagine slang and then figure out the rest. But anyway, uh, and I've had slight PTSD from this movie ever since, um, since watching it. Uh, and I was absolutely dreading watching it again because very few movies have ever left an impression on me in this way. I've seen bad movies. I've seen great movies. I've seen a lot of mediocre trash. This is, sits in a completely, it's, its own category, all on its own. It is one of the most uncomfortable viewing experiences I've ever had. And I was dreading the day that we would have to watch this for <laughs> um, for Academy Rewind all over again. Uh, you go. Well, now you know how I felt over the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's nowhere close. Hush. Hush. Um, I will say, though, because I have seen this movie, I saw this movie before as well. I might have seen it more than once before. I'm honestly not sure. Um, but I, I do dislike this movie. And, um, so this time around, because I'd already seen it, and because, because I was like, I, like, when I saw this again, or when I was going to watch this again, like, I remember how much I disliked this movie, and I was like, there's almost no chance that, uh, like, time has softened this movie for me. Like, my opinion will suddenly change. So, I actually skipped a lot of, like, the ultra-violence and rape. And I will say, makes the movie a little bit more palatable. Still not a good movie. Still would never recommend it. Um, but, but you know, it also condenses the movie down to like five minutes. It's weird. <laughs> well, okay, so here's... So the movie's actually divided quite well into three acts, right? You have the first act, which is Alex's and the gang's, like, awful behavior, like, world crime, crime, wave, crime yep. wave. And then the second half is... The second act is the his time in prison and the aversion therapy and, like, getting the bad out of him you know and then the third one is his reintroduction into society what's he like what's he doing what's he about how did it work how did it not work and it's actually segmented really well like these are the clear delineations mm-hmm. of the timeline um and yeah. here's my devil's advocate for this movie i also will never recommend this movie to anybody it's too uncomfortable but i actually think that kubrick did exactly what he meant to do and the movie does exactly what it's supposed to do making it an extremely effective film because it's so uncomfortable. Like, there's no glorification here. Like, the point is not to glorify Alex. I think that fans of the film, I think, let me finish. I think certain fans of the film have done that. Uh, I think that it sits in the zeitgeist or pop culture glorifying Alex and his action, and the gang's actions, and I think about, like, the one of the Halloween Simpsons episode where Bart is dressed like him and I'm like this 
is mm-hmm. the worst the Simpsons parents have ever been. Like, that they allowed this fourth grader to know who this is and dress like him for Halloween. Awful. Anyway, um, but I think that it, it doesn't want you to feel good about this violence, right? It's not, it's not glorified. It's not, it's, it's not sexy. It's not anything. It is horrible and ghastly and gross and leaves us like a sinking feeling in your stomach because like because of the way that Kubrick delivers the material and how people have taken that away I that's on them I think that's more on them than the movie than the movie itself because I know other people who have seen this movie like you like me who are just as offended by it and that's what he really I think that's really what he wanted to do and oh it's it's absolutely what he wanted to do my you're right the movie is very effective in what it tries to do and what it wants to do the point is I don't see the need for this movie I don't see like I'm not I will never say that someone watching this movie then committed violence because of this movie I think they committed violence because they were already predispositioned to do it and then they kind of saw this movie and was like okay what the hell you know but I don't like I'm never one to be like well violent video games is why we have all this crime nowadays Mm -hmm. you know I'm never I'm never going to go down that because we grew up with the same video games we're fine we've never gone to jail at least I haven't I don't know about you just as a clarifying fact for the podcast that's what you say Uh (laughs) where were you before Uh where were you between when I was in the fifth grade and like in 23 yeah you mysteriously disappeared from St. Mary's is all I'm saying you mysteriously disappeared first because you're older than me (laughs) (laughs) you mysteriously disappeared after grade 8 yeah and then I didn't see you again Um, until you were in your 20s <laughs> yep um, so so I just like I would argue like this movie I don't think this movie needs to be made I would argue the you know I will say that I have read like out of all of the adaptations of books that Kubrick has done this is the more fateful one yep. um, so then I could also argue the book didn't need to be made but who knows um, and that's more of a taste thing like I, I completely understand there are people out there that for some reason like this movie talking to you Scott <laughs> who just bought it I, I whether Scott although Scott no offense to Scott Scott has a tendency to buy the movie and never watch the movie it's like the to be watched pile so jury's out of whether Scott I mean to be fair watch this movie ever again we don't know this is true because I do own the movie I bought it when they put out like the collection of Stanley Kubrick movies in a box set uh, originally on DVD and then again on Blu-ray so the only reason I own it twice is because it's been in Kubrick box sets mm-hmm. and I like other Kubrick movies because I like Stanley Kubrick yep. you know stuff so yeah, this, that's what I say it's it's not but, it, it's it's an extremely well made film it's truthfully like my taste aside and like like the heebie-jeebies I get while watching it aside it's one of his best it's like extremely yeah. affecting like from start to finish it is the most disgusting Shakespeare movie yeah, ever it's not Shakespeare it's just because they use it slang. is though it's called slang we all have it it's high English it's not it's just because they're British <laughs> no like I and I will say Malcolm McDowell is great in this oh, movie oh yeah he's amazing like ju- like he wins just for narration absolutely Ab- no, like ever, like I said everything about this movie works it's 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 wonderfully made I just like I'm just so offended by its existence because not because <laughs> it's so well made but because it disturbs me so greatly and there are very few yeah. movies that are, even come close to touching that here and I think part of it is because Alex himself, the character 
character like he's not sick he's just a bad person like and that's what like he mm-hmm. just like he's just an awful human being and like he doesn't have an, there's no excuse there's no anything he's just bad and that is what and because it's also so realistic in its dystopia that you just like recognize this world they're like this it's just all of it's awful it, it's it is mm-hmm. awful anyway but it's awful but I agree in, incredibly well made but please you continue with your facts if they are fun because it's clockwork orange oh no they are definitely not fun clockwork orange slash also Kubrick so who cried the most tell me (laughs) when Malcolm McDowell met Gene Kelly at a party several years later the older star turned away turned and walked away in disgust Kelly was deeply upset about the way his signature song from singing in the rain had been portrayed in the clockwork orange yeah I'd also since it was improv and not yeah I was gonna say yep it was an improv scene in the, which is even more disturbing it wasn't an improv scene him singing no I know the scene was improv. I know the scene was an improv that was kind of the one of the yeah. worst things imaginable try the wine <laughs> be cool be cool try the wine anyway ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, the worst the worst thing ever he has no idea I dislike him I am going to play this so cool try the wine <laughs> have this food <laughs> oh it's so good it's like it's almost disarming how unsettling but also hilarious the performance is at the same time <laughs> the two copycat crimes that prompted stanley kubrick to have the film withdrawn in the united kingdom were the rape of a dutch girl in lancashire in 1973 at the hands of men singing singing in the rain and the violence of a 16 year old boy who beat up who had beaten a younger child whilst wearing alex's uniform of white overalls a black bowler hat and combat boots yep yep, yep. So that coming. Yep. Contrary to popular claims, this film was never banned in the UK. It was originally it originally received an X rating in 1971 and was withdrawn from distribution in 1973 by Stanley Kubrick himself. One of Kubrick's reasons for withdrawing the movie in the UK was that according to his wife Christine Kubrick, he and his family received several death threats because of this film. In the 80s and 90s, British fans who wanted to see this movie would have to order it from video stores in other countries, usually France. In 1993, London's popular Scala Film Club showed this movie without permission. At Kubrick's insistence, Warner Brothers sued and won, causing the Scalala to close in near bankruptcy. In 2000, the year after Kubrick's death, the film was released again throughout Great Britain and received an 18 rating. Wow. So from the 70s to 2000, this film was not available in the United Kingdom. And truthfully, they were better for At it. At Kubrick's request. Yeah, they were better yeah. for it. See, but that's why, that's why I I also will back Stanley Kubrick because, like, he saw what happened and he went, nope, my bad. And, yep. yeah, and he took it away. That's that's kudos to him. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, can we can we talk about another movie now? Uh, we could as long as it's not um, The Last Picture Show. I'm sorry. It is The Last Picture Show. We can talk about Fiddler on the Roof. God, no. We can talk about Fiddler on the God. Roof again. <laughs> We're just going to talk about Fiddler on the Roof again because, like, th- there is not a lot of good music here. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think we got – well, Fiddler 
Taylor was good. Nicholas Alexander was good. Clockwork Orange is objectively well made, even with the heebie-jeebies. So <laughs> let's go to the last picture show. Peter Bogdanovich directed it, written by Peter Bogdanovich, uh, and Larry, uh, based on the novel by Larry McNerty, um, starring Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Cloris Leachman, Ben Johnson, and Ellen Bernstein. Nominated for Best Actor for Bridges, Supporting Actress for Bernstein, Director, Adapted Screenplay, and Cinematography. This movie won Best Supporting Actor for Ben Johnson, Supporting Actress for Leachman, and Best... No, didn't win Best Picture, and it was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> no, no. It shouldn't, shouldn't win anything that says Best in it. And I wrote Picture at the end for some reason, but it definitely did not win Best Picture. So, Supporting Actor and Supporting Actress, Johnson and Leachman. Story takes place in 1951, in which a group of high schoolers come of age in a bleak, isolated, atrophied North Texas town that is slowly dying both culturally and economically. I thought this was when the film started, I just like it was so dull, and so awful and I didn't know what was happening or I didn't care what was happening, I should say. It's, and it's I didn't not care. A complicated story. It just didn't care at all. And then when I finally figured out the point of the movie where it's like it wants to be like the antithesis to Happy Days or to um uh and or to American, American graffiti. graffiti or which is even even American Graffiti has its moments of like um you know realism or or whatever you know like it's not it's not a you know a G movie but it just wants to be like it wants to take away any sense of glossiness about coming of age in a small town in the Midwest or in Texas or anywhere in the United States really it just like it 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 wants to take away any like charm that Peyton Place might have placed upon you and just demolish it completely and after I figured that out, I kind of enjoyed what it was doing. Like, it, it definitely sits in the, like, um, we're being edgy for edgy. Like, it's sick because now we can because it's the 70s. And so, like, look, every yeah, five minutes know. is somebody naked. Somebody's getting groped. Somebody's doing this. Somebody's doing that. So a kid is dead. There's this, all of that. And I, like I said, after I got it, I was like, okay, that was good. Performances were fine. I'm bummed out and uh, and I want to die. That was kind of how that's kind of the way yep. it ended. So now I'll watch A Clockwork Orange. Oh, thank God I watched Clockwork Orange first. It was only a steady incline after that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I knew what it was trying to do, and I was like, oh, I don't. I just, there was a lot of this movie like I just didn't care about. I didn't, there was no reason really for me to care about the characters. I, I honestly don't have a lot to say about this movie. It looked pretty. I thought the black and white worked for the movie to give it kind of like that bygone era type, mm-hmm. type look. Um, and right. Because it's like playing into like the teen fifties film, right? You know, like you right. Know, this co- last night. Of I also age. like. I also like how like it it takes place in the past. So like if you look at if you look at it from like people remembering the past, you could almost remember it in black and white. Yep. Because it's it's older. Um, I felt Cloris Leachman uh did a really good job. I thought she was she was really good. Um, Ben was was fine because he played um played the guy in the cowboy hat, yep. right? Yep. That was. Uh, I yeah. knew, yeah, I knew Jeff Bridges was in this movie. I didn't really recognize him that much, except for like him looking kind of like Jeff Bridges. Uh, but other than that, like the writing, all right, it's it's fine. I've seen this, I've seen better versions of this movie of this story, and I would say this, this is a chance we've seen better. You know, there was better versions of this movie prior to this movie coming out. So I don't even know if I would say like, well, this is the first one, which is why it gets recognized. I honestly, there's like there's a couple of the categories that you listed I'm like okay I could see that but overall best picture I don't see why it got nominated 
I honestly don't get see why it got nominated for the writing. Um, um I do, see, and that's funny because I do. I can like I can like everybody's everybody's quest and how like a small town every action affects somebody else, even if you think that it doesn't. And you know, just kind of the you know, like I liked the the motif at the beginning where they're watching father. They're actually watching father of the bride. Um, despite with the Spencer Tracy father of the bride. At, you know, so we open with like them leave the movie and then we close with the last movie and you know the last picture show the last picture exactly. show exactly we're actually going to watch that father of the bride uh next season Ooh, yeah nice um so i i did kind of like all of that but i just mm-hmm. um but to your point i think i have seen other coming of age stories just register with me better i did think that sybil shepherd mm-hmm. was very good i thought that her before like, oh, I yeah. thought she i sure. thought she was she was not better than cloris leachman but like out of all of the teens like in their own coming of age struggle i yes. i found hers yep. the most layered because she like she because they're all a slight stereotype that they're trying to break down and that's kind of what they were what they mm-hmm. were going for but yeah so yeah that's i mean i will say the the most like the the most interesting part about this entire movie is the fact that when you know um the director his wife worked on this movie as the production designer, and during this movie, he was having an affair with Sybil Shepherd. <gasps> I did not. So know that. the fact that the fact that his wife was working on the film with him, and he was still able to find time and somehow able to have an affair with Sybil Shepherd, breaking up their marriage was was really the most work put into this movie by anybody. Apparently, wow, I did not know that. Maybe, yeah, maybe uh, more props to Sybil Shepherd for just <laughs> I don't know. So like. Was she acting or was it real life? I don't know who's to say. He really got a performance then. Anyway, yeah, give me some fun facts on this movie because I, I got. Whereas we had a lot of words for three of the movies so far, I have, don't have many more words. Yeah, according to Cloris Leachman, the cause of her dysfunctional marriage was that her husband was gay. She claims a scene between her coach husband and the team's quarterback would have revealed that implicitly, but because of the budgetary reasons, was never shot. Oh, it sounded like something that Cloris Leachman also would have made up as part of her character history but like, that's cool that it would have been in there yeah no this movie did have a lot of budget problems or as far as like low budget upon selecting the town of archer city texas as a filming location production designer and wife Polly platt and director her husband director peter bogdanovich decided that the town should have a bleak colorless look about it well they certainly achieved that they sure after did. considering they sure several yeah, after considering several options such as painting all the buildings gray platt and bogdanovich consulted close friend Orson Welles about the viability of shooting the film in black and white. Welles simply said, of course you'll shoot it in black and white. Welles was a huge proponent of black and white photography because he felt that it always made the actor's performances better. I don't know about that, but I think the black and white does work. I think movie. it does, and I actually, depending on the way that you light them, like, you might actually be able to catch more facial tics because of the contrast of the black and white. So, like, that might yeah, be Yeah, but that's not how they were filming this movie. No, but that might be what, I mean, that just might be what Wells was talking about, like just that they like yeah, like like I would argue like thrillers, noirs, stuff like that. Absolutely, like do a really like black and white does a really good job with them because of the way you can light the face and hide the eyes. Like you know, we talked last episode about um, the first time we see Indy's face, yep. and prior to that, like the lighting that's used to see him. Like imagine if that was 
wasn't black and white. No, haunting. It would have been beautiful. You know, but it, but they kind of, they still kind of light it kind of like it was in black and white, which is why it Correct. works. It's called low-key lighting. Not to be confused with low-key, yeah. the god of mischief lighting. High-key? Yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with high-key lighting, which is completely which different. Is, Peter yeah. Bogdanovich. I was going to say, which is basically, yeah. um, I was going to say Alice in Oz, like Dorothy in Munchkin Town is high-key lighting. You're like, oh my yeah. god, it's so bright. <laughs> like, shadows don't exist here. <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich claims that the crew disliked him because he always ate with the actors on location. He wanted to mold the performances with outside, without outside influences, and he repeatedly and he reportedly fired a crew member one day who told Sybil Shepard that she should smile more in the movie. So Peter Bogdanovich was the modern day women's ally for firing somebody because they told a woman to smile more. Yeah, but they, or he fired her because they insulted the woman he was having because they dared. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I I choose while I would have agreed with either situation, I would choose to believe that he did it just because they told her to smile more. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's not a good thing to say, but I, I think that the reason for firing him might be a little bit more uh, close to the vest than he was admitting at the time. Um, but also that would be where the I, time might comes have been, from. But... He didn't want to eat with the crew because that's where his wife was eating. Right. Like, why is Sybil Shepherd eating with us, dear? No reason. Just trying to mold her performance. <laughs> honey don't worry about it yes yeah wow all right let's move on to the best okay. picture the french connection directed by william friedkin written by ernest tidyman based on the book by robin moore starring gene hackman roy Sh- roy scheider scheider no I, I always want to say schneider but it's never going to be that you do roy yeah, scheider, everyone yep. i know roy scheider and fernando fernando ray nominated for supporting actor for scheider cinematography and sound this movie won best picture actor director adapted screenplay and editing which is one of like the it's it's one of those like uh, oh you almost got all the big awards um, you almost got all the big ones mm-hmm. movies and the, uh, if you're not familiar with the French Connection it's about a pair of New York City cops in the Narcotics Bureau who stumble onto a drug smuggling job with a French Connection ah that's the reason for the title it's really about G- it's really about Gene Hackman's it's really about Gene Hackman's character who just like will must do anything to like you know be the cop he wants to be you know and you know to make his reputation and going so far over the line that he's not he's not acting within the the boundaries of the law anymore this was one of the first movies to that like might be the first movie that was like yeah you know like cop shows or whatever else or like tv shows or movies like yeah this is what it looks like but this is like this is 70s grit cop this is it's all surveillance and talking to people and you know listening in and it's very it's much much less of a shootout than than what the TV would lead you to suspect, but then ramps to one of the famous, one of the most famous cha- car chase sequences in cinema history. Um, Roger Ebert wrote in his review, I was looking it up afterwards, when Ebert reviewed it, he wrote, there's no time for character development. It moves too fast. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, I mean, there is absolutely time for character development, but he's right. There isn't any. There isn't any. And that's what I thought. I think it said in 1971, he's, he's right. It, it moves moves at a decent clip especially for you know movies of its era now it it moves pretty slow like it's it you know by yeah. by by our modern by our post star wars editing standard where everything is just hacked and sliced and you know everything much you know faster more intense um it's a it is a relatively slow moving movie um i had never seen it before and as as i've said many times i'm not super into cop stuff on t- like on tv it's just not it's never been an interest 
it's just never really been an interest to me. This one I appreciate. I appreciated it for its place in movie history, but I think a lot of mm-hmm. its awards fit its time and not its timelessness. Like it, like it's a it's a movie that moved a genre forward, changed the way that genre changed the way that genre works in Hollywood on TV and movies and whatever else. But going back and watching it for the movie that it is, it's 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 a well made good movie, but I didn't find anything particularly dazzling about it in in a way mm-hmm. that other movies can be decades after they're made. Would- yeah. Um yeah, I mean it was it was fine enough, but I agree with you. Like it compared to today's movies, it moves a little slowly, um, which which made it a little bit difficult for me to to get into it first. Uh I think Scheider and Gene Hackman do a good job. I don't think they do a great job. I think they do a good job. You know, Gene Hackman is doing well, but it's still at the end of the day kind of like the Gene Hackman I'm used to. True. This is really before he was real famous. This is the thing that really propelled him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so like yeah. it's like he's still he's he's still at the point of his career where actually like he really can do a character as opposed to be like be more Gene Hackman, you know, like so Yeah. Oh um, and this is based off a true story. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh yeah, you know, this is the the two cops uh that the that the characters were based on were were uh used as consultants and actually some of the people that were involved uh show up in the movie too. Hmm. Um so I will say like there is stuff that I would that I'm fine with like I'm I'm generally fine with this movie getting nominated for best picture. I don't know if it should win best picture, but it's a good enough movie. It's a it it's fine, it's good. And then what it does really well, like what it what it innovates on and what it it projects forward, I think deserve it. Like like this beats this is one of the best chase scenes in film. Like even even compared to nowadays, like I would still hold this up better than a lot of other stuff. You know what I actually really liked about the chase sequence that nobody really tells you? It's a chase sequence. It's like, they're like, oh, the car chase sequence. Like, it's actually a car chasing a train. Like, it's like, no one actually yeah. really talks about that. Like, it's almost like they're waiting for you yeah. to watch the movie Thru- to discover Through it. New York with no permits. Yeah, no lights, and it's just like the car gets... What I liked about it is that it is it is brutal in the chase. Like the car doesn't like magically survive. Like the crap that he <laughs> yeah. puts it. Through. Yeah, no. Gene Hackman is a horrible driver. Like, he just puts it through the ringer, and I I really liked that. I I loved the grit of I loved the grit of everything. Though it's seventies New York, so it wasn't they weren't trying to make it gritty. It just was. You know, <laughs> it's like yep. a scene where they pull somebody in an alley, and there's like a tire that's on fire, and I was like, that was probably there. Like like there's no reason that. <laughs> that wasn't there in 70s New York so uh, but I agree with you yeah. uh, there's no reason for this movie not to get nominated I think that like to Ebers but there is he says there's no time for character development and that's true because that's not really the focus of the movie it's, it's <laughs> yeah, about no. the drive and the chase to get the thing which is fine I want to play our favorite game yeah. of what came out in 1971 um, THX 70, yeah, yeah. THX 1138 yep. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate nope. Factory Aww. Dirty Harry Ugh. Steven Spielberg's best film duel no just kidding um actually is good but it's not his best um diamonds are forever the greatest disney movie of all time bed knobs and broomsticks oh that should have got nominated um what else the zodiac killer shaft harold and maude the omega man (laughs) the the andromeda strain red sun escape from planet of the The superman uh no not the superman one um on any sunday the beguiled 
Um, I'm running out of movies. Ah, oh, that was, yeah. So the original Beguiled came out mm-hmm. then? Big Jake Get Carter. Um, the original, the cartoon of the Cat in the Hat. I don't know if that counts for anybody. But there's some pretty solid movies in here. But truthfully, like, apart from, like, like we could talk up and down about, like, how, like, you know, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is, you know, a classic blah, Willy blah, Wonka, blah, 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 or whatever. But Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and Omega Man, and you replace... Uh, you definitely replace a Clockwork Orange. You definitely replace the uh the Last Picture Show. Yeah. See, I don't know if I would. And I don't. I don't, I don't know if I'd replace any of them. Like maybe. Oh no, I would. Yeah, I don't know. I see. As like, I'm with you. Like you, I, I hate, I hate Peter Pan, and also a Clockwork Orange. Um, I, I hate a Clockwork Orange so much. But like, I, I get it. I get the awards. I'm thrilled it didn't win. I don't want to like bestow that win upon the movie but I I get it and because it's it's just that well made and I don't know this is, might be heresy I don't really like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory I like pure imagination and then the rest of it I can pretty much leave you're fired yeah well starting next starting next episode my new co-host will be Lisa from I Love That Movie okay um, you be sure to tell her because I have no idea when this episode comes out so you have several you have <laughs> several months at the minimum to, to tell her so let's see if you remember I I, no, we're gonna forget, and like we'll get a random, we'll get a random message from Lisa on Twitter about it. And, you know, and I'll say, "Oh, too bad," because we already recorded sixty, fifty, forty, and thirty. <laughs> so because we definitely forgot. So, but anyway, the French Connection, the editing, I it's editing award. I can I can get for its time. Um, you know, adapted screenplay. It being you know, uh, adapted screenplay. It being a um, you know, a true story. Even even Hackman's award like he's very subtle for Gene Hackman what he's doing but again there's not tons to work with so almost like his award comes from like getting something out of nothing um hmm. so but but I there it's it's a well-made movie like Clockwork Orange it's just not for me and maybe doesn't unlike Clockwork Orange maybe it just doesn't hold like a place in my mind for good or for ill yeah um yeah I don't know I just I just think it's better like I understand like technically speaking Clockwork Orange is really good but Technically speaking, this movie is pretty good too. Correct. Yeah, and it's just a better, it's just an easier movie to get into. Um, less mental stress. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I have, I don't think I've ever come across another movie that has like given me anywhere close to the mental stress that A Clockwork Orange continues to give me to this day. Um, yeah. Watched it twice within nine years, and I still think about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, give me some fun facts. To save money on the budget, and also because they didn't always have permits, William Friedkin had the cameraman carted around in a wheelchair instead of using a camera mounted on a dolly tracks for the moving shots. This is most noticeable when Gene Hackman runs to the runs to then enters the subway car as the camera follows Hackman hurrying towards the car. The film movement is smooth but then shakes noticeably as the cameraman has to get up from the wheelchair and follow Hackman into the subway car. That's cool. That's cool. I always like camera tricks you don't notice. That's fun. According to William uh, Friedkin on his DVD commentary the scene where Weinstock's chemist tests the heroine's purity uses 
actual heroin and not flour or cornstarch or some other commonly used substitute. Huh, that's fun. That's yeah. a fun fact. When filming the legendary car chase scene, Friedkin needed approval from the New York Transit Authority. He laid out exactly what he needed, to which the TA employee, some sources say it was the conductor, responded that, to approve this, I'll need $40,000 in a one-way ticket to Jamaica. When asked why one way, he replied, because, Mr. Friedkin, when your picture comes out, I'm going to be fired. Director William Friedkin and the producers complied with the man's request. The scene ended up becoming one of the most notoriously dangerous ever filmed, after which the TA employee was promptly fired for negligence. His current whereabouts That's are unknown. fantastic. I mean, I love <laughs> that the dude was ready to go for it. He's like, yeah, I'll restart my entire life for you. Like, just give me the ticket. I, I hope he's doing well in Jamaica to this day. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, and, and before we do the 1972 Rewindies, let us tell people where they can find us at Academy Rewind on Twitter and TimothyPG13. AcademyRewind.com and Gmail uh, if you want to check it for us. Knock your socks off. Um, ThoughtBubbleAudio.com for all the ThoughtBubble Audio shows. Patreon.com to support all Patreon, uh, to support all ThoughtBubble Audio shows and probably missed one. Oh, rate and review us on iTunes. You know the drill. Yeah. Um, Palmer, let's do the 1972 Rewindy, shall we? Yes. Okay, yes, so as um, as with all as with all Rewindies, we can, uh, we can can only pick from we can only pick from the five films um we can only pick from the five films that you see uh that we have seen in this category and we go um from best supporting actor all the way down to best picture this season we include the director in that as well okay yep. let's start with best supporting actor i'm going to give it to leonard frey in fiddler on the roof who was he in fiddler on the Played, roof um the, the tailor Motzel. oh i see i'm gonna give it to tom baker for rescue. okay cool Coo 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 coo. Supporting actress, I give to Cloris Leachman in the Last Picture Show. Ah, uh, Cloris Re- Leachman, yeah. yeah. Almost Civil Shepherd, really close. But you know, you just when when paired up against like Cloris Leachman, like it's I'm sorry, it's always yeah. her. Um, production design, yep. I give to Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, I give it to Nicholas and Alexandra. Choice. Excellent choice. Costume design, I give to A Clockwork Orange. I think that the dyst- future dystopia is like just funky enough, but still so dated, but also very uh, like iconic. I, I think it all kind of fits together. Uh, Fiddler on the Good roof. Choice. Uh, makeup and hairstyling I give to Nicholas and Alexandra because, by God, they look like they're real people. Well, they, they were real people. Facts. That's true. They they were not puppets. Good. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it to Fiddler on the Roof because uh, T'Pol was in his 30s playing 50s, and he looked more 50s. Yep. I, I stick by my answer, but when you said that, it blew my mind. Like, just couldn't yeah. believe that he was only in his 30s. Uh, best music I give to Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, Fiddler on the, the roof. visual effects. I give to The French Connection for that outstanding chase sequence. French Connection. Uh, cinematography to Fiddler on the Roof. French Connection. Uh, editing, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, French Connection. Sound, The French Connection. Ew, no. I specifically told you no on French Connection for sound. Fiddler no, on the Roof. Oh, it was good. Surveillance is always good. Nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Um, uh, best actor I give to Topol for Fiddler on the Roof. Best actor I will also give to Topol. Um, best actress I give to Janet Sussman for Nicholas and Alexandra. Best actress I will give to Sybil Shepard. Okay. Best writing I give to Fiddler on the Roof. Best writing I will give to Fiddler on the Roof. Best yes. director I give to Stanley Kubrick for understanding the movie that he made and doing something about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, best directing, I will give to the French Connection. Oh, freaking William Freakin. Um, yeah, he's freaking out, man. Um, and best picture, I give to Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, Fiddler on Fiddler the on the Roof. All right, we did it, everyone. Nineteen seventy-two rewindies are down. Next up, nineteen sixty-two. The Guns of Navarone, Fanny, The Hustler, Judgment at Nuremberg, and West Side Story. Um, Aw, yeah. All right, well, that is it for us, which is good because they're playing us off. No, I have some more people to thank. Too bad. Bye. Bye.